15. This is continuing in the kind of story of Jesus' birth. So when they had gone, who they is the Magi we talked about last week. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going back, going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I've called my son. Let me pray. Lord, these are your words to us. When we open up the Bible, you open up your mouth. These, we don't want to put you on mute. We want to be able to hear these words that you have for us to learn from today. There's a reason why we have these words to us, even today, um, and a reason that we don't even know right now, because you work as your word is heard and understood. So I pray for all of us, myself included, that none of us would miss what you have for us to know about you today, uh, and that it would be something that would uh, affect us and change us um, as we go about our week. We pray in your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, I wonder if this um, idea sounds familiar. Uh, you feel lonely, and in order to not feel that way, you organize a night out, and it goes well. Oh, some friends come out, you have a few drinks, it's really good. And after a bit of time, though, you kind of feel lonely again, so you try the same thing. Oh, maybe night out with some friends will do me good, blah, blah, blah. It goes around and around and around in a circle, or maybe something a bit on a larger scale. You feel like a bit um, aimless, a bit empty. And so in order to like, not feel that, you set some kind of goal. I'm going to get a promotion and job. I'm going to find a partner. I'm going to have a kid. I'm going to buy a house, whatever the thing might be. Um, and you get that promotion. You do the thing. You get the kid. You get the partner, whatever the thing might be. But eventually, the meaning in that in itself kind of wears out over time. And that nagging sense of aimlessness kind of creeps in again. So you go for another promotion, or maybe another kid, especially if you're the Martins. No, or, <laughs> or, uh, or maybe, oh, you know, well, you know maybe I got a promotion last time. Maybe I'll do a holiday this time. But, you know, it always circles back to this sense of wanting to get something more from this world, which is a really good sense to have. But this is also the wilderness of our time, the spiritual wilderness of our time. Wilderness in the Old Testament was when God's people were caught between being freed from slavery but not yet in the home that God had planned for them. They were going around circles and circles in this desert for decades. It shouldn't have lasted even a year. But they went around for 40 years, for a whole generation. They went through this circle, this cycle that we go through as well, that kind of spiritually aimless cycle. Here's actually what it look, might look like mapped out. So you feel empty. You're going to set a goal, whatever it might be, something good mostly. Um, you could even achieve that goal. And then what do you do with that achievement? You feel really good. Oh, that was great. I got the promotion. I got the job. I moved house, whatever the thing might be. Um, but eventually, that thing wears out and just comes back to feeling empty again. Because no job can ever really fulfill you for the rest of your life. Or, no, this is the best case scenario. Here's the other scenario. You set goals and you don't achieve them. I want to get that promotion. You don't get that promotion. And then you just get the um, quickly to feel empty. You don't get to feel good. You just feel empty. But notice with this, whether you are doing this one, where you did achieve the things, or doing this one, where you didn't achieve the things, it always comes back to feeling empty. You could get everything that you want, and it does come back to feeling empty. Now, if this is the circle that we're stuck in, it doesn't matter what kind of goal, what kind of achievement, or even if we achieve it or not, we always come back to feeling empty. And this is exactly the kind of cycle that Jesus wants to break us out of. We need someone to break into that wilderness of ours, to go ahead of us and lead us out. 
but also be with us as we walk this different kind of path. Because actually walking with Jesus isn't a cyclical kind of never-ending spiral. It's a trajectory towards somewhere. Instead of it being a never-ending spiral, it's a story that goes somewhere. And as we walk through our spiritual wilderness, Jesus leads us out. And not just us, but other people. And that is exactly what is going on in these three verses. Now, you might be like, wow, that's a kind of, um, what are we going to talk about today? Um, We're going to narrow it down even farther than those three verses. And we're mostly just going to focus on the last words of what Matthew talks about. The fulfilling what the Lord has said through the prophet, out of Egypt I've called my son. Matthew was telling us that Jesus is the founder of a new community of God's people, one that breaks us free of this never-ending cycle, and one that follows Jesus on the path towards rescue, freedom, and life. Now, before we can really actually understand what's going on there, because you might be like, what, like how, why does that even matter for Jesus to have fulfilled this thing about out of Egypt I've called my son? We have to understand what the context is. Uh, just like all of us, um, whenever we speak, whenever we write, we're, we aren't doing so in a vacuum. Matthew is writing to an audience, uh, and the audience is um, very familiar with the Old Testament, the majority of our Bibles here. Uh, the prophet that Matthew is quoting is Hosea. Uh, who's, this might get a little bit confusing. Okay, so Matthew is here. He's quoting Hosea, who came in the Old Testament here. Hosea is talking about the Israelites in the Old Testament that are back here, but he's using that to talk about Jesus and the future Messiah here where Matthew is. That's confusing. So Matthew's writing here about saying this is what Hosea meant when he talked about the Israelites that talk about the Messiah. So it's like all kind of interlinked. It's, uh, there's a, a, a great nerdy literary term. If you ever want to impress your friends at a party, just say, ah, oh, I feel like the Bible has a high level of intertextuality. And um, you'll find out you won't have any friends anymore. Um, but, the, uh, but you'll feel good about yourself. You will have achieved and feel good for a bit. Um, but then you'll feel empty because no one's around you anymore. It was basically like the, the Bible has like millions of these like hyperlinks that are connected to each other, interconnected to each other. And we're, so we're just going to, I think it's, it would be important for us to even understand why it matters, I think we have to understand the context that uh, Matthew is writing into today. So we're going to spend just a little bit of time uh, on the context of what Hosea is talking about. Uh, because Matthew's audience knew the Exodus story better than we do. And at, if you have any questions about this or any of the other stuff, there's always uh, redeemermcr.com slash ask, which is the bottom here. They're anonymous questions. And if you have a question, if you're like, mm, I don't know, is that a question? I am sure someone else does too. And we, I would love to talk about that uh, after the service when we get to them. So let's talk about what the Exodus story is. So there's Matthew, there's Hosea, there's the Old Testament Israelites. The Exodus story, the Old Testament Israelites, they're enslaved to Egypt. Egypt um, has them building pyramids for them, and the pyramids are grand. Someone's got to build those things. The Egyptians aren't going to do it. They've got to get either cheap or forced labor to do it. Uh, they, so God's people, enslaved by the Egyptians, the, God's people were not free to worship God in the way that they wanted. Uh, they didn't have a home. They had jail cells, basically. God came to Moses to lead his people out of slavery toward a new home, in order to be free to worship him. It wasn't just for freedom in general, especially when you read it early on in Exodus. It was, they were freed in order to worship God. There was a reason for the freedom. Now, in order for God's people to be freed, he appointed a leader, Moses. Moses' mission was to free Israel from slavery, not just to like let them run, run amok, but to free them to, what was, to their home, what was called the promised land. He was going to give them a home. He was going to give these slaves a home of their own. Uh, and in that home, they'd be free to worship their God. They'd be free to worship, worship Yahweh. Now, it didn't quite work out like this behind me because 
God's people aren't teleported to the promised land. They're not helicoptered over there. They don't automatically just jump over there. There's this other in-between phase that they had to go through called the wilderness. And as they're freed from slavery in this wilderness, God does many things for them. He shows them miraculously how he's their provider. He shows them what it looks like to live in this new home before they even get to the new home. This is in the wilderness is when they're given the Ten Commandments, when they're given like how they ought to like form as a nation, all these other kind of rules of what it looks like to live, what freedom looks like in their home. Just like we have laws. We have laws we have to abide by that allow us to have the highest level of freedom. Same kind of thing for the Israelites in the wilderness. Well, the Israelites, even though they were freed, God's sons and daughters here are not exactly obedient. In fact, the word that often comes up, I'm not sure if it's in the NIV translation, but it's a great word, is grumbling. They're not grateful that God's freed them. They're not grateful that God provides them food or water in a barren desert. They grumble all the time. And what they often say is, man, it would be so great to go back to Egypt, wouldn't it? It would be so great to go back to those cell blocks, to, to slave away for the Egyptians. And because they were living as these spoiled children, not following the Lord's way, they wandered around those circles for 40 years. And nearly the entire generation of the first generation of people to leave Egypt died off. Eventually, though, that second generation does go into the promised land. And eventually, even if only for a little while, there is peace and there's prosperity in Israel. It doesn't last for very long, though. Now, this whole sequence here, Egypt, wilderness, promised land, uh, this Exodus, Exodus narrative comes up again and again and again in Scripture, especially in Ephesians 1 and 2. It's a big, huge theme. There's obviously, there's a theme here that Matthew's trying to talk about in Hosea. When Jesus uh, explains to the disciples, when Jesus gives the disciples a Bible lesson, the resurrected Jesus in Luke 24, he says, all these stories in the Old Testament, they're all about me. The Bible isn't first a book about us. It's the first a book about God. And what it tells us, this God, what he does is he frees us in order for us to follow him so that we could have a home. We go from slaves to wanderers to residents. And if this story is about Jesus, as Jesus has said and as Matthew was telling us, then that means Jesus is the founder of a new community of God's people. This new community frees us from going around in circles. And instead of those never-ending cycles, there's a destination, there's a place that we're actually going to. So thinking through this Exodus narrative now, even just that kind of brief overview there, out of Egypt, I've called my son, has all these layers of meaning in, imbibed with it, specifically that Jesus is a new and better Moses, and that Jesus is a new and true Israel. Or put another way, if Jesus is the founder of a new community, then Jesus leads us, as Moses did for the, for the Israelites, and he's with us as an obedient son instead of a disobedient son. So those are the two things we're going to get at, that Jesus leads us and he's with us. So let's get to that, that first section here of how Jesus leads us. And mostly it's about Christ being a new and better Moses. So it, remember, to get to that, that verse 15, out of Egypt I call my son, we look back to what Hosea is talking about. Um, and really, when you think about it, God has given us a book really written over centuries to people in all sorts of different cultures, all sorts of different authors, and somehow it still has an, in that intertextuality that is unlike any other book that's written even by one author today. It's kind of mind-boggling when you think about it. But anyway, that's a whole separate thing. Um, that was a freebie. Uh, Jesus leads us. He went ahead of us, and his mission is bigger and better than Moses, which is really good because we're not living in Old Testament Israel. So... If Jesus is just Moses, then it doesn't really matter for us. But if he's a new and better Moses, that might matter for us. It does matter for us specifically with Jesus being our rescuer. As a good leader, Jesus went into the chaos of our chaos first. 
He didn't kind of feel it out. He didn't ask others to go ahead and be like, yeah, how about you go ahead and, and see what that's like and then come back and report back. No, he went into the pain himself first to the cross. And he doesn't ask us to do that. He does ask us to bear our cross. Jesus never asked us to bear his cross. Only he did that. In fact, because he did that is the very reason why we don't have to. And he did this to rescue us from our sin. The penalty of our cosmic treason against God is death and separation from life. But here's the thing, we can be rescued from that. We can be rescued from that in those negative cycles. And Jesus went ahead of us for this very thing, and that's why we're here, because we're rescued. So we, we do get rescued through Jesus being this founder of a new community. And in leading us, his mission is broader and more substantial than what Moses had in front of him. Jesus' mission includes people who are beyond one ethnicity, beyond one nation. Matthew has already told us that a lot already. We've had spent a good amount of time talking about how Matthew's making sure that the readers are knowing that Jesus is going to be drawing in outsiders. But this scope is also bigger than what Moses was set to achieve, because Moses' job was to uh, get people who were in slavery to the Egyptians and to live as like a free nation. But what Jesus does is he takes people who are spiritually enslaved in their hearts for us to be able to live as a free people. That's something that no human being ought to claim to do. That's something only really like God can claim to do. We willingly still run to those cell blocks. And though they're cold, we know them, and that gives us comfort. Jesus has come to free us from those cold cells and give us a real life of freedom in return, regardless of our station in life. And Jesus, being this founder of a new community and leading it, he can change what we can't. He can change what we can't. Jesus leads us with a much bigger mission in mind than what Moses had. Moses couldn't change hearts. That was obvious from the very beginning. And probably one of the things that frustrated him the most was that he couldn't change people's hearts. Moses led people out of slavery. Now, a good politician uh, might make for some good change for their people. A good monarch can inspire people to a life of service. A celebrity podcast preacher can be very helpful in learning about the faith. But no politician, no monarch, no preacher can change a heart. Only Jesus can change what we can't. It's easy. It's so easy. And we do it all the time. It's so easy for us to live our lives overlooking our biggest need at the darkness in our hearts that needs to be dealt with. And not only just and for us and in the, uh, in what, the consequences for us or the people we love, but the consequences of living that way under a holy and perfect God. Now, Jesus wants us to bring that need to him so that he can lead us, so that he can rescue us. Only he went to a cross with our sins. He put them to death. And if you want to be freed from your slavery, we can come to the one who can change what we can't. And on the cross, what happens is the death of death. Jesus, who's the new and better Moses, doesn't just destroy one people's slavery. He destroys death, the thing that enslaves all humans. Not all who die will die. For those in Jesus, it is not death to die. Now, Jesus doesn't lead us out of slavery and have us run amok and do whatever we want to do. He leads us into his promised land, the new heavens and earth, the parts of us that long to see that, how this world ought to be, that we get tiny morsels of this. When things are going really well, we have a great experience. I mean, Joe and Dominic's wedding, it's kind of like last night, was like, oh, you know, this is the part of this where it feels like heaven. And we get those little kind of snippets that, that kind of slice through. Or the other side, when, when life doesn't match up with how we want it to be, we have those aches in our heart, like, oh, life really ought not to be like this. That ache that you feel is a reaching for what Jesus promised to, the new heavens and earth. 
Jesus rescues us from death and rescues us to life. To be rescued from something is only good if you're going into a better situation. If you're in a lifeboat and you get rescued into like a, I don't know, a ship full of Somali pirates, I don't know if that's necessarily a good rescue. Uh, I'm trying to think of something other, similar, ridiculous metaphor, but you get what I mean, I think. To be rescued from something is only good news if you end up somewhere better. Jesus rescues us from death and rescues us to life. And he can do this because he's the leader of this new community. He's the king. So I wonder, do we even know who leads us? I don't think we probably think about that very often. And if you think you only lead yourself, that just means you're just not really self-aware of the, your own cultural water that you're swimming in. I wonder if we think about who is leading us. So out of Egypt, I've called my son. Jesus is the founder of a new community, and as such, he leads us. He's a new and better Moses. This is one of the things that Matthew is saying by these words being fulfilled by Hosea, out of Egypt, I've called my son. But this also refers to Israel herself, the nation. So Jesus leads us, he's also with us, but unlike Israel, the Old Testament during the Exodus, Jesus is the obedient son. Jesus isn't grumbling uh, to God the Father all the time. No, he's obedient and he's with us. So we're gonna look at that side of Jesus being the founder, uh, being with us. Christ as a new and better Israel means he's the obedient son. Now, why does it matter for him to be obedient? Why is that important? And we get an answer to this if we go back to where Matthew was quoting from. So Matthew's quoting from uh, Hosea, chapter 11, uh, and here, I'll put on verses one and two up here. Where this is the context of where Matthew is quoting from to give us an idea of why he's doing this. He said, when Israel was a child, this is kind of God's words to the prophet, to Hosea. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. There's the quote. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. Notice that's not part of the quote that Matthew is quoting from. That's not a fulfillment from Jesus. The more they were called, the more they went away from me. And he goes on in verse seven. It says, the same chapter, my people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God most high, I will by no means exalt them. So they're very religious. They're outwardly looking nice, but inwardly their hearts aren't really following God at all. This is more against religious people than it is against anyone else. So this is Israel's disobedience made plain. And yet, when we get to verse 10, just a few verses from here, which seems like, okay, how, how are people going to follow God at all? We find this, they, who's Israel, they will follow the Lord. When you read the chapters, like it comes out of nowhere. How is that going to happen? The people who are determined to turn from God are also going to follow the Lord. How, how is this going to be possible? They're disobedient. How does this change of heart take place? It comes back to one of the reasons that Matthew is quoting this, is that Jesus' obedience becomes our obedience. Jesus' righteousness, which is the, where the Bible says, also another word for goodness, becomes our righteousness, becomes our goodness. When we follow him, he takes away all the death in our hearts, and in that rescue, he gives us his goodness. And it's his goodness that allows people who would normally run away from God, normally turn away from him, turn to follow the Lord. Now, Paul in Romans picks this up uh, a lot throughout Romans, but here's kind of one example of it in Romans 5.19. It says, For just as through the obedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. So Paul's saying, just as through the disobedience of Adam, the many were made sinners. All of human race now were kind of messed up because we kind of fall in this messed up line. So also through the obedience of one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. This is what, uh, what Paul is picking up on what Matthew's talking about here. And the scope here now for Jesus and for us is far beyond Israel Hosea's scope was just about Israel. This is about the whole human race. Through Adam, we came into this world imperfectly, 
what Jesus does as the obedient son is give us the goodness that we've all lost. So the reason why it's important for Christ to be obedient is that he gives us his perfect life when we believe. That's one of the things we get with him being with us. Another thing that we get is him leading us is that he's patient. He's with us. Because I think we all know we need that. I mean, there's stories upon stories in the Bible that the first whiff of suffering or God not wanting to do the thing that we want him to do, people give up, they get angry, they grumble against God. And that happened in the wilderness for Israel, and that happens in the wilderness for us too. And then there are many stories in the, in the Bible as well, and this is true of our lives as well, that when God gives people a home, when, they, when he gives them all the stuff they want, they don't worship him either, they kind of forget him. So we either grumble against him or we forget him. And you know, that tells me whether we get the thing, whatever the thing might be, whether we get the thing or don't get the thing, we have a problem. We got a problem. Jesus, who is with us, though, with us, though, is patient in our problem. He's patient with us as we change. He's not like the, um, the marathon runner who's like sprinting way up ahead and be like, oh, well, you guys got to catch up? Oh, you guys are so slow as we're trying to like, you know, we've only done a couch to 5K, maybe. How are we going to possibly keep up with Augustine, who's way above the pack? No, he walks with us. The Bible calls it a walk. It's not a run. It's a walk. He, Jesus knows the difficulties of this life more than we do. I mean, do you think it required a little bit of patience for him to live on this earth? Have you ever gotten frustrated with people who just don't get it? Man, that was Jesus. He had 12 people who he spent every hour of his life with for years, and they still didn't get it. They deserted him at his time of need. Surely that must have been frustrating. And what did he do? He was never like, when are you guys ever? I can't believe I'm done. He's never said that. He just walked with them patiently and continues to walk with them patiently in us. I think if he can be patient with them, he'll be patient with us. Now, he's patient, but he does walk us through change. So there, it's not like we don't move. There is movement. Uh, we don't stand still. And so in, in walking with Jesus, following him, there is an action. There is a movement towards something. Heart change doesn't have to be fast. It rarely is. But there is always a movement towards something. It's not a sprint, it's a walk. It's kind of like if you've ever gone on a walk with a toddler and you have to hold their hand because if you don't, they'll stumble. You're walking really slow. It's almost like if you were to walk by yourself at that speed, people are like, man, he must have something wrong. He's kind of like, this is me walking through the park. You're like, what, was he in an accident? Like, what happened? Like, no, but if I'm holding a toddler's hand, it's like, oh, he's walking with that toddler. That's why he's walking so slow. Because I'm patient, well, Hopefully, sometimes patient with my son. I'm holding his hand when he was very little. And also, because we know they're going to stumble, you hold their hand to stop them from doing that as well. Jesus is patient with us. He also, uh, we talked about this previously, but this is true with him, whether he's leading us and with him leading with us, he destroys all death. As the new and better Israel who's with us, he destroys all death in his death and in his life. He was perfect. He didn't have to die. So he destroys our death in the future that we're going to have. But the, all the little kind of deaths that we bring in through our own sin now, he destroys those as well. And Jesus didn't just willingly choose to die. That, that's true, and that in itself is a tragedy. He took on everything that would separate us from life, even death itself, as he died, and removed them from us. Paul in 2 Corinthians helps us out again. Say, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become, this is ridiculous, we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness. When you woke up this morning, we were like, ah, I'm the righteousness of God. 
let me get my coffee. No, like, how often do you think about that? Like, I don't, I rarely think about that. You know what? I'm the righteousness of God. How, surely that would change how we go about our day. You know what? You are the righteousness of God, not because you're righteous, but because Jesus is and because he's with you and because he's leading this, in this new community that he's founded. All the goodness that God has, I think God has a bit of goodness, all the goodness that he has is now in us. When you're feeling down or feeling good or just not feeling anything, this is the reality. You are the righteousness of God. And that means Hosea 11.10 can be true of you. They will follow the Lord. That's how we can do that, is because now we're living a life differently through Jesus. Not because we're good, but because he's good. And that life gets to be our life. So Jesus is not just our, our king, our leader. He's also with us. And a great way that the Bible also talks about this is that he's our good, loving older brother. Now, maybe you've had some older brothers that weren't loving and tried to pin you down. And I, I had a housemate in, um, at uni who his older brother would pin him down and try and spit in his mouth, which is <laughs> fantastic. Um, I never did that to my younger brother, but uh, maybe I missed a trick. Um, this is uh, something that Jesus does not do to us. He will not pin you down and spit in your mouth. I know that. But here's, here's one example of where this comes up. This is Hebrews 2.11. It says, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy, both Jesus and his people, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus calls us his, his brothers. He, call, he calls you his sister. He calls you his brother. That is an amazing thing. He's not ashamed of us. And it's not like when we're good, he's like, oh, yeah, now, I'll, now I'm, I'll, I'll call Dan my brother. Like, no, he's good. All, he says that all the time. When we would be ashamed of ourselves, Jesus is there pointing us out. Do you see them? That's my brother. That's my sister. I love them. They're my family. Jesus is always closer to us than we think. So he leads us, and he is with us. And it's a little bit... Um, I was thinking of an illustration to combine these things a little bit. If you think of like the founder of a big tech company, someone who has like a big grand vision, like a big mission that they're going to save the world from X problem or do this thing or whatever. Um, clearly the one in charge is, is this person, but he's also still involved in the work. He's not removed in some kind of corner office. He doesn't have like a, a C-suite that requires a key card to come in or the security cards, or he doesn't have like a, a diary that's so jam-packed that he can't meet with you know, the, the minions of his, uh, his employees. No, he's there in another cubicle next to us, coding away, doing the same kind of work that we're doing. He leads us through being with us. That's what Jesus loves to do. That's how Jesus works. He leads us through being with us. He's not leading through being removed from us. He's leading through being even closer to us than we probably imagine. And this is what Matthew is getting at. All of what we talked about today is what Matthew is getting at when he writes about Jesus, out of Egypt I've called my son. There's a lot of stuff getting packed in there, which is why we spent a fair amount of time in those few words. He leads us and is with us. He does the things that we can't. He's obedient to God in ways we can never be and uses his power as God to generously give us his goodness. So let's take that and apply that to what we talked about in the beginning, in our wilderness. We're in this cycle. We're bound to repeat it. We're bound to go round and round and round. And where are we going? We're not going anywhere. We're just going around in circles. But what are you to do if you want to get out of a negative cycle and you don't have the power to do so? Someone has to break in. 
And that's exactly what Jesus has done. In our spiritual wilderness, Jesus broke in. He was born as a baby in the town of Bethlehem. He broke into our world. In our own spiritual wilderness, Jesus breaks in. He sees our need. He leads us as he's with us. You don't have to get sucked into this like disaster hamster wheel kind of secular rhythm of false fulfillment. That's what this is. This is, this is a way of worship. This is a way of living right here. This is the best the secular world can offer us as a way to live. But Jesus is such a better way. Christ's story can be our story if he identifies with us. And by breaking in, he disrupts the script that we write for our own lives. He gives us a better one to live into, one where we get to be the righteousness of God, where we get to be rescued from our sin, where our death is not the end of life, where we can experience change in ways we couldn't otherwise. Jesus is our patient older brother, always inviting us to more, more of him, more of life, more of what only he can give. And the amazing, crazy, nutty thing about this is anyone can get in on this. You don't have to be good. In fact, the people who aren't good are often the people who get it more easily than those who are. In order to get in on this, there's one thing that is required, though, is for us to surrender. Because if he's the one who leads, if he's the one who's with us, if he's the one who's teaching us how to live, it does require a level of surrendering the ways that we thought were good. We live in the way that he tells us. We pray in the way that he prays. We read the Bible as he does. We find our worth in him. We organize our lives around him. We learn to love in his way as we learn to love him. And we shouldn't, even though we are, we shouldn't be surprised when following Jesus' story is different from the secular story. Like, that, it, it, it's not fun. That's a difficult thing because change is difficult. No one really wants to change, especially when it's related to our hearts and things that we care a lot about. But if Jesus' story is different... Or, but Jesus' story will be different because it's going to lead us outside of those negative cycles of wilderness wandering into something more like a new heavens and new earth. And I don't think there's really anything more radical a human can do than reject all of the ways of living and follow Jesus. There's nothing more radical than that. In fact, the other day, me and, um, me and Katrina were joking about um, singing like punk rock music, punk rock worship music. And I was like, I think it's kind of fitting because I don't think there's really been anyone more punk rock than Jesus in all of history. The kind of person that he was, the kind of uh, disruptions that he made to everybody on all sides of the table. Um, he just destroyed everything that was bad in order for only the good things to, be, to remain. And I don't think there's anything been a more radical act in all of history than God himself dying for his ungrateful children. That's what we were. That's what we are. We're ungrateful, and yet still God delivers everything for us. On the cross, taking the shame, despair, loneliness, isolation, death, all the stuff that that negative cycle brings about, he took them away from us, and in their place, he gives us his goodness. His life, himself, a story that we get to live into. And that's what we humbly celebrate when we come to communion. It is a celebration for those who follow Jesus. So if you don't follow Jesus, this is not something that we would ask for you to join in with us. Um, the bread and the cup that we will take as we sing, the bread and the cup symbolize Jesus' body and blood. His death is our death. His life is our life. And think of what that might mean, especially in just the things that we talked about today. If his death is, is our death, which is what Matthew is saying, out of Egypt I called my son, and his life is our life, that's what it means about his righteousness becoming ours, his goodness becoming ours. This is what we get to celebrate. One of the things we get to celebrate when we come to communion. And Jesus, years ago, when he was on the earth, he told his people to remember him, and we continue in this tradition keeping his words. And so as we sing and pray, and singing, by the way, is a form of prayer. We're singing back to God. 
uh, we will take the bread and the cup on our own. And as we do so, let's not be those ungrateful kind of children that we generally be in our own wilderness, but let's be thankful for what God has done in our lives and ask him to continue to do his work in us. The bread represents his body given for us that we might be forgiven of living in our own negative cycles. And the cup represents his blood given for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And as we follow him, being the righteousness of God, what God does, he gives us his Holy Spirit that empowers us to live outside of those negative stories, negative cycle scripts, and into God's story that gives us actual life that we really want. Let me pray. Jesus, we come to you knowing that we are stuck in those negative cycles. We are um, kind of stuck in uh, our own shortcomings, but also people sin against us. And and even in ways that we don't want to be, um, we still kind of end up that way. So God, I pray that um, in all the ways that we can't change ourselves, that those wouldn't be things to overlook or to press deep down and never think about or to just get completely frustrated and give up on, but that those would be things that we would bring to you. Those would be opportunities and places uh, for you to work, prayers for us to say, not just for ourselves, but for other people. Because, Lord, I'm sure areas that are difficult for us are also difficult for other people. So I pray the brokenness that we all have, that surely we all have brokenness. We can all say that wherever we are with you, God, we all know that we aren't perfect. All those imperfections, all that brokenness, Lord, I pray that we would just give a little bit more of that to you. And if we've never given that to you, maybe we could try that out and see what that's like. And if we feel like we're really good at giving that to you, Lord, I pray you would reveal even new areas of our hearts so we can give that we haven't yet. Lord, we pray and ask for you to work, and we eat and drink and sing in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The, um, there's one question that came in on, um, on uh, slash ask 